Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. If you're new with us, I just want to say a special welcome to you. Um, just say hi. Who's, who's this tall? Stuart? <laughs> uh, I just want to say a special welcome to you if you're new with us. And if there's anything that we can do for you um, to help you out tonight, um, answer any questions you've got or plug you in any kind of way, please don't hesitate to let us know. Um, we're here to serve and love this campus and serve and love the people of this campus. And so if you're a part of that, then we'd love to serve and love you as well. Um, so we spent a good chunk of this semester talking about relationships, dating, marriage, etc. And a big part of what we've wanted to do with this series is to help us move from idealism and the inevitable disappointment that comes with that to more realistic hope for ourselves and for one another. You see, I think most people, when they're looking for someone to date or even eventually marry, are really kind of looking for kind of a finished product. They're looking for kind of a chiseled David or a polished Aphrodite, like someone who has no major character flaws, who's always, they find, physically attractive, who's very good in social situations, who's going places, or you just always connect with every time you talk with them. But when Christians think they found that kind of finished product, they always end up disappointment and disappointed. Like, no one is finished, especially not us. This is why, as we get into this passage tonight, Paul is going to say that marriage is this profound mystery. That if you look in the Greek, he actually says it's a mega mysterion. It's a mega mystery. It's bigger than a regular mystery. It's a huge mystery. And what makes it such a mystery is that it's an extraordinarily great truth wrapped up in the relationship of marriage that's so wonderful and can be so life-giving that can only be understood through the help of God. You see, when you get married, you're, what you'll find is that marriage is anything but sentimental. It's sometimes sweet, sometimes it's spicy, but it's never, ever saccharine. What Paul describes in Ephesians 5 is a profound mystery. And that's exactly what you'll lean over to one day with your spouse and look at them and say, what we have here is not a regular mystery, it is a mega mystery. Like this thing with us, like what is going on? What's going on with you? What's going on with me? This is a mystery. But what is this mystery? Paul says it's the unique way that the gospel is showcased in marriage. He's saying that when a Christian man and woman marry one another, they're actually playing dress-up. They're acting out in their small way, in their time, in their place, in their small parts, the great drama of salvation. They're putting on the raiment of Jesus and his bride, the church. And as one theologian said, that we all live in a story and we learn through our bodies. And the power of Christian marriage is that we would live in the story of the gospel and learn how to live out of that story through the unique roles that those bodies give us as men and women. Then in some aspect, there's a part of this story that a women get to play that men don't get to play. Or in the same way, there's an aspect of it that men get to play, but women don't get to play. And so before I begin, I want to point out that one of the reasons that we talk about the Bible so much is the church believes that it's a text that's not a product of any one culture or one person, but actually stands over all peoples and cultures and uses human authors to convey God's words about who he is and how we respond to him. And that means there's times that you read the Bible or I'll read the Bible and we'll feel deeply critiqued by it or even deeply offended by it maybe. That everyone who reads the Bible will at some point feel this way. And that's not because it's inherently offensive or derogatory, but I want to suggest to you that it's because it's the words of a wise and holy God to people who are by nature not wise or holy. And so tonight, if you're here and it's doing that, we're glad that you're here. Stick with us. See me afterwards and ask me questions. Keep wrestling with this stuff. We're here to wrestle alongside of you because just as you're being kind of goaded or provoked or critiqued by the Bible, like so are we, so am I. And so let's begin here. 
is Ephesians 5. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So you might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a challenging text for us. Um, What to do with it, what to do with... uh, some of the words in it. God, I pray that you would help us to understand and see and know your gospel in it and through it and because of it. They would see the light of the beauty of your son Jesus shine in it. They would see his work on our behalf, his work for the church. They would see our work uh, for him and because of him. Lord, I pray that you'd be at work in our hearts tonight, that you'd be with us in his power and his presence and his love and his holiness, his kindness and his wisdom. God, would you, pr- would you provide us now in such a way that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so you'll start off and look at the way that Paul says that marriage is really about Christ and his church. What's he mean there? What's he mean by that? Um, not too long ago, Katie and I were raiding thrift stores looking for 25-cent VHSs um, because the DVD for Disney movies is literally, literally a hundred times more expensive and I grew up on VHS. Katie grew up on VHS. Like, we, our kid can grow up on VHS, too. Like, she can handle it. And one of the movies that we got there is we were raiding all these Disney movies. And there, trust me, there's a treasure trove of these at a thrift store. So just don't take all of them from us. Um, we found The Lion King, which is one of my personal favorites from childhood. And if you don't know, The Lion King follows uh, Simba. And his dad, Mufasa, gets uh, killed by his uncle Scar. Simba goes into exile. He comes back years later as this big, strong lion, and he drives Scar out. Uh, ultimately, Scar dies, and the kingdom that had died under Scar um, comes back and flourishes under Simba. And it, I loved this movie growing up, but it took me until college, especially a college English class, to realize that The Lion King is essentially the story of Shakespeare's Hamlet, but told for kids. It's like, it's not as grim or gritty, but... Lion King is Hamlet. Trust me on that. Uh, and as you watch Lion King, though, you see that you know, it's a story with lions, but it's not really about lions. Lion King is more about power. It's about a kingdom thriving under one type of king and dying under another. It's about the return of hope. It's a small-scale story that points to a much larger story. I mean, it's Disney doing Shakespeare, right? Um, this semester, we're talking a lot about relationships, dating, marriage, sexuality, and seeing how our relationships aren't just the playing field which God is consistently working in our lives. But if they would be truly satisfying, then they have to be about something much greater than themselves. What I want to say tonight is that in a similar way to Disney's Lion King is a story that's not really about lions. That a good marriage has two people in it, 
But it's not primarily about those people. You see, Christian marriage is really two people playing dress up and acting out the drama of salvation. It's got people, but it's not about people. It's about God saving the world. It's about Jesus loving His bride, the church. As we've asked so many times this semester, is your longing for marriage a longing for a bigger story? Because if it's not, you'll be miserable because your marriage will just be about you. But if it's about something bigger, then it'll be the vehicle for a much greater story beyond yourself. Did you ever realize that when you're reading the Bible, what you're reading is essentially a really long story made up of lots of smaller stories? And the story starts way back in Genesis with God making the world with light and darkness, day and night, sky and land. And whatever your position on those first few chapters of Genesis, the story that it's telling is one where God is making these kind of complementary opposites. They're not opposed to one another, but which actually lift one another up. And in the interplay between the two, make the world a more interesting, beautiful, complicated place for the glory of God to dwell in. So God is telling the story in Genesis, and finally the creator gets the high point of the story where he says, let's do something new. Let's do something new. Let's make a creature in our image. But let's make this creature in such a way that it shows this complementary togetherness. And it says, and so it makes them male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve. These complementary opposites united in marriage. The beginning of the Bible starts with this marriage, and at the end of Revelation, the Bible story wraps up with the marriage of the two ultimate complementary opposites, of God and His people. So the moment of redemption not only is the world put back together so its initial glory is set to rights, but there's a new and breathtaking glory that's entered into the world so that the first earthly glory is eclipsed by this new heavenly glory. And how does this heavenly glory enter the world and ultimately heal it? Because God's put the sin and brokenness of His fallen creation to rights by sending His Son. Do you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to His Father? What does He pray there? If there's any way to let this cup, this crucifixion that's coming my way, pass from me, can we do that? But not your will, but mine be done. What's Jesus doing here that Paul is putting his finger on in this text? Jesus is submitting He's submitting to His Father. Jesus, who's equal in power and glory and eternity to God the Father, submits Himself to Him. He says, not my will, but your be done. As both God and man, Jesus isn't just showing us what it is to be a faithful human being who follows God's will. But He's also pulling the curtain back and He's showing us what it is to be God. That the very heart of God's existence is this community of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are constantly glorifying one another and submitting to each other in a complicated kind of give and take. Like if you've ever been to the ballet and you see the dancers and one lifts the other up and they turn and then that one who picked the other one gets picked up. Have you ever seen that? It's like the Trinity is like that. It's like this give and take, this high and this low. And the point that Jesus and Paul are making here is that submission isn't about being less or about losing agency, but it's about being humble. This is why Paul begins talking about husbands and wives by saying, submit to one another. He starts off this passage that way, submit to one another. That both of you should be submitting to each other. This is godly and holy because it recognizes that we, like Jesus, live in this chain of authority. This is tied up in the very structure of reality. It's to say that I have a place in the world and that's a good place. That you can be a person of dignity who is smart, who is strong, who is powerful, who is equal and who can still submit to someone else. Guys, in the same way that Jesus took his rights and his privileges and made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and even dying the death of the cross, 
in order to make his bride, the church, holy and happy and beautiful. When you say, I do to her, you're saying that for the sake of our oneness, for the sake of her holiness and her beauty, I will die to myself for her good. I will submit my life and my power and my work to her good. In a similar way, ladies, when you say, I do to your husband, you're saying that following him and being shaped by his love is a good and necessary part of God's work in your life. Y'all, there are people that are going to tell you that marriage is 50-50. You do your part and I'll do mine. Do not listen to those people. A great marriage, a great Christian marriage is a hundred, a hundred. I give you everything that I've got, and you're going to give me everything that I got, or that you've got, and we're going to make it through life this way. The husband cannot live for himself. He has to go all the way to the bottom and die to his interest. The wife can't live for herself. She has to follow her husband as he leads her in living out the grace and truth of Christ. Above all men, God calls you to cherish your wife and to delight in her, right? To make her know that every day, that more than your career, more than your bros, more than video games, more than your fantasy football team or your golf game, even more than the children that you might have, she is the most special person in the world to you. Above all ladies, God calls you to respect and follow your husband. Men, your passivity, that hesitant fear inside of you that to die to yourself and care for your wife like, will cost you something. That will be the bane of both of your existence. Why? Because it creates a vacuum for your spouse. That even if she's the most competent, most authoritative, most take-charge person on the planet, you can't do a marriage just one person in and one person checked out. She'll be desperately longing for you to act, to have an opinion of something, to take some sort of action. And you'll struggle because it take your attention off of your work, off of your hobbies, off the things that you want to do. And to put your attention on her will feel like dying to yourself. In fact, it will be dying to yourself. Some of y'all are dating right now and you feel totally in love. And you're thinking, Simon, this will never be me. I love you and it will be you. It will be. Like, guys, it will be you. Women, your fear of following him will drive you both crazy. You'll find yourself mad at him because he's not proactive enough. And he's not doing enough. And you'll have to pick up all this slack that you like, shouldn't have to pick up. And so you'll be forced to be proactive for him. But you will also find yourself demanding that he do something and then getting mad at him when he does it because it's not the way that you wanted it done. Like, straight up. <laughs> and as I preach this sermon, know that this is really about me. <laughs> but the question at the heart of submission for both sexes, for men and women, is that like Christ, can I be a powerful person in my life and still serve others? Whether you're called to lead by dying to yourself for the good of the other person or called to follow by looking to the other person for the good of the relationship, this is the question for you. Like men, if you aim to get married, then there's a day coming when you have to ask and answer for yourself, can I submit my desire to protect and serve my interests to her and to her good? Like women, if you aim to get married, then there's a day coming when you have to ask and answer for yourself, can I submit my fear and my desire to be in control to Him. Y'all, submission is about being powerful and loving enough to lose for the sake of the beloved. Like, I get the question all the time, when will I know when I'm ready to marry this person? I get that question all the time. You will know that you're ready to marry this person when you can say to them, I want to lose for you. I want to give up power, interest, 
like hobbies for you and for your sake. Do you realize that's what Christ did for the church when he submitted to the will of his father? That he lost for her so that she would gain everything. Do you realize that's what the church does as she follows Christ? That's why we sing lyrics sometimes like, Jesus, I'm at cross have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God, which is you, and heaven are still my own. That These are marriage vows. Like these are, This is the church saying to her beloved, to Jesus, I love you and I'll follow you no matter what. I'm all in for you. And y'all, a Christian marriage requires that whether we are husband or wife, we're not to live for ourselves, but live for the other. And this is the hardest part of marriage because it's the most unnatural to who we are. We're by nature very selfish people. Yet if you would have a happy marriage, it is the most essential part of it because it's the very place where the gospel story shines clearest. It's the place of forgiveness. It's the place of courage. It's the place of true love. Future husbands, the question at the heart of your struggle to love your wife will be, is she worth dying for? Future wives, the question at the heart of your struggle to love your husband will be, is he able to serve me and be strong for me in the ways that I most need him? Or am I going to have to do this thing on my own? Future husbands, the only way that you'll be able to push past your desire for accolades at work, the pressure maybe of your parents, the desire to have extra money so you can buy a boat or go on a really cool vacation... And die to yourself and die to your desire for success and your desire for power for the woman that you've covenanted with and to live for her is if you can answer the question, has Jesus already died for me? We love because he first loved us. And guys, if you haven't internalized his love for you, then you lack the necessary power to love her. Future wives, the only way that you'll be able to push past your fear is that you're going to be able to actually help me or care for me in the way I most need him? Is he really going to be able to be there for me when I'm old and I'm not beautiful? Is he really strong enough to weather the storm of like my hard, bad days? Is he going to hang in there if I become my mother? Like The only way you're going to be able to answer that question and respect him and put your power and intelligence and success with this man and in his corner is if you can answer the question, has Jesus given himself to you in the way that you most need already? Behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. If you haven't internalized his commitment to you, then I think you lack the necessary power to believe him when he says that he's going to give his life to you and love you. Y'all, you'll find that sin twists our differences so that we compete with one another or snap at one another over our God-given differences. Like, she's too sensitive. I feel like I have to walk on eggshells. He's not sensitive enough. Getting to him is like trying to batter down this brick wall. But those differences, and I know that I'm painting in really broad brushstrokes there, are created for glory. So we can get out of ourselves and move towards an other who's not so different that we can't connect, but who is different enough that we have to grow in our ability to love and our ability to be wise in order to love this person and be with them. To become a complete person, we have to grow towards that person. Which is the way that God-given gender differences work. Guys, have you had the experience yet where you realized that she's just much better at reading social cues and knowing herself and you and your emotions than you are? Ladies, have you had the experience yet where you feel overwhelmed by a situation, but you see that he has the strength to tune out that extra noise and just keep pushing forward? 
Like, again, I know that's broad brushstrokes, but do you see the way that those tendencies of the genders complement one another? That you can do a lot with this other person that actually strengthen you? You know, we live on a campus that values diversity, and that is not a bad thing. That's a great thing. But what often gets downplayed is the biggest, most diverse thing that God's given us, which is a marriage between a man and a woman. And what that gets so right, that desire for diversity gets so right, is our need of someone else to truly understand us and for us to truly understand ourselves. You know, I had this experience recently um, in a way that wasn't tied with gender but with race. Uh, this is a flag I don't fly much, but it, it sometimes comes up that I'm an ordained minister in a particular denomination. And part of that is like four times a year I get together with other ministers in the state and I go and meet with them to kind of fellowship and pray and talk about how we can help bring God's work into North Carolina. But in the last year, one of the wonderful things that's come up in our denomination is the, the degree to which so many of our forefathers participated in kind of institutionalized racism and how terrible that was. Now, even though some of us weren't even born when that was kind of happening, that we have a responsibility to act on it and repent of it for, on behalf of all the people that have come before us and so we can kind of lead the people that are coming after us. And so in this past year, there's been this huge, wonderful movement of public repentance on the part of our denomination. And recently, I had a friend and fellow pastor who was talking at one of these meetings. And he stood up and he said that he had this desire to have people of other races in his church. And what he said really resonated with me. It was one of those, hey, I feel that too, but I haven't been able to articulate it yet. And you're doing a better job of it than I could. Like one of those moments. Because he stood up and he said, I really feel like that in order to see myself, I need someone else who's different to come alongside of me and help me to see me. And help me to see my blind spots and all the ways I'm just being a dummy. You know, that's, that's a beautiful sentiment. And I think that's one that I really want to encourage. But that's not just race, that's gender too. Do you realize that in order to do life well, married or unmarried, you need someone who is like you, but also not like you to help you see yourself? to help you get over yourself and your perspective of who you are and start to see the real you. And that can, happen, that can happen in good community, but I promise you that it will happen in a great marriage. When I read the start of this passage, um, what did you think? One of the things I thought about as I read this is, what's the power to change here? I always think that when I'm, I'm reading the Bible and it gives these commands to do this thing, um, which is hard, like, to telling me to die to myself and live for Katie is a hard thing. Like, what's the power for me to change? Let's look at the start of this passage. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so Paul's telling me, submit to her and submit my interest and my power to her. And then, but he's connecting that with like the spirit and psalms and hymns. Like, how does that work? Why does he say that? I think this is the reason. Because it's through the spirit, it's through God's work that we understand the story. And it's through things like the songs that we sing that are centered on the gospel that we help one another change, that we work in the truth and the grace of the gospel into our hearts. Because the work of both the spirit and the church, Jesus' bride, is to point us to the mystery of marriage to the gospel, and that is deeply sanctifying. Tim Keller says this, is the reason that marriage is so painful and so wonderful is that because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. You see, in the gospel story, y'all, we're told that we're more flawed and more sinful than we ever dared to imagine. 
that you're so bad that the only way that you could be forgiven was that if God became a person and died a shameful death in your place. Like that's inherently painful and humbling, right? Yet in the gospel, we see that we're more loved and more cherished than we'd ever hoped. That you're so beloved that God did come as a person and die a shameful death in your place. And that out of this, out of this story, out of this relationship with the Lord, out of a relationship that's infused with this, that this is the kind of relationship that will transform not only us, but the world around us. You see, love without truth is just empty sentimentality. It supports us, but it denies our flaws. It really doesn't mean very much. But truth without love is harsh and cold. It kicks us out into the darkness. It sees our flaws, but it doesn't support us. But when you combine both love and truth, radical honesty and radical commitment, you have something that sets us free. You have something in which even angels long to look. You have a a gospel-centered life, a gospel-centered marriage maybe. And God's purpose in marriage is to show us and teach us day in and day out the gospel story. That this is why marriage only works to the degree that it shows the self-giving love of Christ. If you've only seen pictures of husbands who are oppressive or cruel, then of course you have issues with possibly submitting to a man. If you've only seen wives that have flaked out and left maybe their family or left their kids to go do whatever they want to do, then of course the prospect of dying to yourself for a woman is, is crazy. But if you deeply commit yourselves to love each other as Christ loved the church and submit to one another out of love, then what happens to that cruelty and that oppression and that fear? If you're building your life around Christ and His story, they evaporate. Because Christ didn't oppress His bride, so the husband can't oppress his wife either. But Christ gave His life so that His bride would be pure and spotless and radiant. And what happens to our fears of commitment? They start to vanish because Jesus is committed to His bride. And she, because he's so committed to her, is committed to him. Don't you see that here in the gospel is not only the pattern for the marriage that we want to follow, but it's also the power to drive that marriage into true bliss? Here's an empty charms of personality or beauty that flees, but here's God dying for his people to marry them and to redeem them. This is the balm to soothe our fears. This is the power to bring reconciliation where there was fear of divorce and heartache and loss. And beloved, if you would have it, this would be yours. Like, this is yours in Christ. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, and I always assume y'all are with us, like, it could be yours, if you so desire. And so I'll end with this. There's one of these great stories uh, by the, about the Renaissance artist Michelangelo, which I don't know if it's true, but if it isn't, then it should be. And the story goes that after Michelangelo has finished carving his masterpiece, the David Someone asked him, like, Michelangelo, how did you do this? Like, the David doesn't look like a statue. It looks like a 12-foot-tall man made out of marble. Like, it's perfect. It's incredible. What was Michelangelo's reply to that? He said, I looked into the marble, and I just took away the bits that weren't David. Y'all, you see, most of us, when we're looking for a spouse or someone just to date, we're looking for this finished person or this finished product. But what I hope each of you will find for dating and even one day marriage is not a finished person, but a wonderful block of marble. Someone with tons of potential. And I want to invite you to live out the gospel in this unique way that God has made you as a man or as a woman. Not so you can create the kind of person that you want or create the person for you that you want to be, but so you can be the kind of person that Jesus is making. That Jesus is creating, staying over you and loving
Y'all, the world needs marriages like this. We need you to carefully look into one another's hearts and gingerly, tenderly take away the parts that aren't true of one another. The selfishness, the anger, the bitterness, the wounds, the immaturity. And smooth over and love and bring into real healing the cracks with kindness, patience, true words, love, wisdom. It takes the power of truth to knock the stone away. And it takes the power of love to find and perfect the person inside. And only the gospel has the resources you need to love and serve your spouse. Only the gospel has the pattern you need to see and understand where you're going. And only the gospel has the power that you need to get you there. And so doing this by God's grace, you'll be living out this great drama of the gospel inviting all of us in this mega mystery of God's love in Christ. That's my hope for y'all. And as always, it's my invitation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the mystery of your gospel, the way in which it informs every aspect of our life, um, the way we work, the way we think, Lord, our marriages, God, maybe even one day the way that we parent. Lord, I pray that you would work um, the peace that comes with your gospel into our hearts. I pray you'd work your kindness. I pray you'd work the true and real saving power of your son Jesus. Um, Lord, that he would show us his goodness, his kindness, his wisdom, his power in and through his cross. He's loved his bride and you would help us to follow him in that love. In his name we pray. Amen.